4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each, of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we're in the... Uh, we're at the tail end, just one more week here after today. We're at the tail end of a, of a um, series of messages that focus on the church, who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We've gone through a number of, um, of sort of uh, uh, illustrations. Uh, for example, the church is called the pillar in the ground of truth. Or last week we looked at what it means that we are the household of faith, that we are the household of faith, a family. Uh, this morning, I want us to look at what it means for the church to be the body of Christ, for the church uh, uh, to be the body of Christ. Um, uh, I think there's, there's, three, there's three categories that we can look at from the passage that we just read. There's other things that I'm sure could be shared. But let's just look this morning together at three categories of what it means for us to be the body of Christ. And then I want to close with a thought that, um, well, uh, I hope it will be useful for today. I hope it will be useful for this day. That is, for the time in which we're living on planet Earth uh, uh, as, a, as a church together. So when we think about the body of Christ, according to uh, this, passage in, in, this passage in Ephesians, you can, you can take uh, some of Paul's really long sentences, okay? And you can, you can kind of categorize them in certain ways, that there's certain ideas that he's bringing to the surface. And one of the things that he is pointing out in this passage is that what it means to be the body of Christ is to be engaged in ministry together. So let me, let me say, say it this way. Um, I don't mean to be, uh, to be flippant about this, but there's a sense in which the imagery is really useful here. That is, if all you had was a head, you couldn't do anything. If all you had was a body, you wouldn't know what to do. But because we are the body of Christ, with him as our head, the, the body is able to do what the body is supposed to do. So please hear this. This imagery of what it means to be the body of Christ absolutely implies ministry. That is, it implies action. It implies activity. There is work to be done. There is stuff to do. And the body is called to do it. The, the, 
the way that sometimes we slip into the mindset of certain professional people who are paid do ministry and the rest of us spectate or, or, or hopefully get some benefit out of it is not a correct approach to the way Scripture teaches uh, us to, th <coughs> excuse me, to think about ministry. <clears throat> I'm like so much better, and then something hits the back of my throat, and I'm like stuck for a minute. <coughs> excuse me. The church, the body of Christ, is called to ministry. The body of Christ has been given a task. Now, in this, in this. In this passage that we just read from Ephesians 4, we see it in phrases like, verse 12, work of service, work of service. We see, verse 16, proper working. That is, that there is work to be done. There is service that needs to be accomplished. And it's the body of Christ that is supposed to do it. There's other, other parts of this passage that we could point out to, to demonstrate the point. The fact is that it is through the body that the work of God gets done. It is through the body that the work of God gets done. So let me say it this way. How many believe that God saves people? Does he still? Amen? Jesus died for sinners. How many believe that he does the work of saving, not us? But how many of you also agree that people won't hear without a preacher? Do you thank God that in some places people get appearances of Jesus to call them to himself? Right? But how many of you have noticed that seems to happen really in places where there's not much access to a gospel witness? In other words, that's not Jesus' normal mode of operation. His normal mode of operation, I don't have a full explanation for this, I think it's the greatest occupational risk that was ever taken by any leader was when he took the work that would result either in the salvation or the eternal destruction of people and left that job in human hands. Gave it to us, right? That, that there, was, there was a delegation of responsibility to the body, to his body. That, that that work is one that we do because he gave it to us, right? That we're the ones that carry it out. We're the ones that do the labor involved in getting the message of the gospel to people on planet Earth. He's our head. He gives us the instruction. We do the work. We do the labor, the ministry end of it. The words that are in this passage are words of activity, that speak to us of ministry participation, not passive receiving or, or any sort of spectating, but engagement, involvement, right? There are things for us to do. Now, um, my intention is not to give anyone a guilt trip this morning, so I'm going to ask you just to bear with me for a few moments and just notice Notice what the, what the passage is telling us. As the body, we carry out the work of ministry. As the body, we do the work that God has given us to. Now, let me read to you uh, a little bit more of a passage that speaks to us 
about the church as the body of Christ. It's familiar, uh, I'm sure, to everyone. Uh, but let's take a look at it because it expands on this idea of the church as the body and specifically the work that God has called us to. So 1 Corinthians 12, let me just read verse 12 and then skip forward to verse 18. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. Yea, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable. On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to, to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now, in this passage, there's there's a number of things that stand out in terms of the, the body of Christ in service, the body of Christ in ministry, in active, engaged ministry on behalf of God. The first is this, that every member is gifted, every member is needed, and every member is intended by God to be actively deployed. Every member. Every member. Now, just hang on for a second and, and let me give a couple pretty important caveats, okay? Being actively deployed is not necessarily the same time as being involved, it's not necessarily the same thing as being involved in a program. Not necessarily the same thing, okay? You know, one of the things that can be really easy for the church to do is to use scriptures like this to guilt a congregation into volunteer service. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. It can happen. Um, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask for raised hands or anything like that. I just want to say this. Serving Jesus in ministry is not necessarily the same thing as helping run a program in the local church. And sometimes, making the two the same thing, people have ended up getting used in ways they should not be used. They get taken advantage of. Their good intentions and desire to serve Christ gets manipulated and guilted into doing things and being in places that, that aren't necessary for them to be in all the time. Now, 
I want to be careful how I say this. Because the fact of the matter is, some ministry just is done better in, a, in an organized, collective way than it is just left randomly up to everybody individually just kind of doing their own thing, whatever that ministry would look like. I'm not anti-program. But I will tell you this. I think the church needs to pay special attention to, to not, not using human beings at a, as a commodity for its own ends. And that's not always easy to pay attention to. It's not always easy to pay attention to. Um, one of the sad things that I have run across a lot over the years are believers who have gotten really hurt. In fact, I would say it this way. The more involved they got, the more hurt they got. And I just want to say I'm sorry that sometimes the church has operated that way. It's not the way it should operate. It's not the way God intended for it to operate. It's not always a visible program or, or an official capacity that a person has to be using their gifts in. On the other hand, did everyone hear that enough? Please hear this. The flip side of that is no believer was intended to just sit on the sidelines for all of life. Hey, I got saved. I enjoy being saved. And here I sit waiting to be glorified. That's not what God has called us to. One form or another, one way or another, one time, place or another, God has designed his body in such a way that everyone contributes to the work of the ministry that needs to be done. That would be, in most simple terms, it would be a combination of gospel presentation, meeting human needs, and discipleship once people are saved. In general categories, I think most everything the church is supposed to be engaged in can resolve into one of those three. There are human needs that need to be met. There are people that need Jesus. And, and once they've met Jesus, people need to grow and be discipled. And then in many respects, all ministry that the church is called to comes down to one of those three areas. So... As an extension of the church, New Hope meets human needs in the area. And we're going to join with them on December 17th, whatever the date is I just announced, right? Take part in that, right? We're going to be a part of that. We're sending Christmas gifts to people in parts of the world that they don't have what they need. And in this, we're supplying a need while at the same time praying that it's part of the presentation of the gospel that they're going to hear, seeing the love of Christ, right? That's the ministry of the church. This is the way these things, these things are broken down into these categories. All of us, all of us are supposed to be engaged in this kind of work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that 
we are supposed to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, not exhausting the saints by the work of the ministry. Right? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Yes, we're supposed to be involved in ministry. Exhausting the saints by the work of the ministry. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. Now, all kinds of caveats again. How many of you were a little bit tired after that week of VBS? Come on. Anybody? A little tired? How many of you know short-term spurts of sacrifice and large investment of energy is not the same thing as being exhausted? You're exhausted physically at the end of it. No one can sustain that pace forever. But every once in a while, the church joins together to do something that requires a lot of intensive labor for a time. For a time. There are seasons like that in individuals' lives as well. Where for a season of time, God calls them to make exceptional sacrifices to meet a need that is present in the moment. And the question of how long is it sustainable is a legitimate question to ask. I want to make sure that I don't give you the impression that there's never a time to push or to push hard. There are times like that. However, as a church, as a body, we need to be sensitive about keeping ourselves sane in this world. <laughs> and recognizing that the church wasn't meant as a vehicle of exhaustion, right? It wasn't supposed to be that. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of things the church can do. But my sneaking suspicion is that not every church is called to do everything that the church can do. And at some points, you start saying to yourself, the body of Christ is bigger than us, and we're going to do the most that we can in, 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 in the place that God has assigned to us, and we're going to have to trust him to raise up others to pick up the slack that, that we can't cover. Just like maybe we're covering some things that they can't do, right? It's not supposed to be a matter of exhaustion. Now, that being said, I've already kind of quickly said, and if you've ever been involved in a place where you got taken advantage of, you got used as a tool, you got, I, I'm sorry, shouldn't happen. I need to say the other side of that, which is, man, I look around, I am not going to name names this morning. I was, I was preparing this message, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, don't, whatever you do, don't say one name. Because that's going to be so unfair. <laughs> I, am, I am blessed beyond words by a fellowship that is as willing to serve as this fellowship is. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. Um... There have been a number of things that I've laughed about over the years. I don't know if you realize it, but in terms of uh, things like age distribution, our church is what most churches wish they were. 
people walk in and they say, you've got so many kids. So many, now there's reasons for that. But it is remarkable that we've got some grandparents, we've got some, what, are, what, what do you want to be called? Mature, settled in life kinds of people. We've got some young families and some young couples, and man, we got our fair share of kids and youth around here. When I, when I get to submit reports to the Assemblies of God, which I'm required to do, and you look at percentages, and then you read statistics on where churches are at and how they're aging, I kind of chuckle to myself, and I say, eh, we're what everybody wants to be, <laughs> in terms of percentages. One of the other things I've thought about a lot over the years is this. There's a rule that flies around church circles that many of you have heard, that 20% that, that of the people do 80% of the work. I've never sat down and tried to figure it out statistically, but I don't, just, I don't think that's close to true around here. We've got way more than 20% of people that are engaged in doing the work of ministry that God has allowed us as a body to do. I mean, I mean it is... I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to just make you big-headed or, or, or manipulate through compliments. It's just, it is a beautiful thing to be part of a body that wants to serve. A body that's not cajoled, doesn't have to be cajoled. That's, man, let's do this together. You know what? Every once in a while, we start something out with good intentions. Hey, let's do a winter VBS. And we go, wait a second, through a number of, of signs... We're realizing we're going to have to back off this one a little bit, right? That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But man, it's not for lack of willingness. It's not for lack of desire to serve and to be, to be as engaged as God could enable us to be. I mean, I am thankful. I am thankful to be part of a body that is so service-oriented. Thank you. Thank you to all of you that are serving in so many ways in this fellowship. The last thing that we see in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 is that ministry absolutely does not include jealous competition for positions and titles. I mean, I don't know what your daydream in ministry is, but Paul, writing in this passage, says there is no body part that can look at another body part and say, I don't need you. He's honest when he says that some bodies, some parts of the body, get more attention and have more honor bestowed on them simply because of what they do, that other parts of the body don't get as much attention. But I've got to tell you this. 100%. Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Learn to be the servant of all. And I've got to tell you, in anything this congregation ever does, whatever you see in public, whatever you see in public, whatever you see 
as the spokesperson. This, the ladies' tea. The, the, however many, how many ladies spoke at the ladies' tea? Ladies, who's there? How many, how many ladies spoke there publicly in front? Two or three? Thank you. It's the setup that's all the work. Not all the work, but I've got to tell you that the, the stuff that happens in the background, the stuff that makes the other stuff happen, I just want to tell you this. God does not see things the way we see things. He does not see things the way we see things. I, I think a lot about the fact that on Judgment Day, it's going to be what in this world was the unrecognized support staff that's going to get all the reward by comparison to the people who were the public spokespersons who did the, the public stuff and got some pats on the back for it. They had their reward. We had our reward. I'm absolutely convinced that that service that takes place that is so unnoticed, that service that takes place in the background is the one that the Lord Jesus looks at and says, you're never going to get another human being putting your name in lights. But when, I, but when you stand before me in my kingdom, you're going to go to the head of the line. You're going to be at the head of the line. I'm not whistling Dixie, Dixie when I say that. I am... Uh, listen, if, if, if you have a hankering for a position or a title, there's going to be problems because there's always someone else that wants the same position and title and two people will end up arm wrestling. But if you want is ministry that God notices, there's more than enough to go around for everybody. And the amazing thing is when we stop caring about whether or not we get credit for it, we can accomplish an awful lot, and then God does the rewarding. And the beautiful thing about him is he rewards according to the way he sees. And he's not as impressed by the things that we're impressed with. I think it was, uh, I need to move on, I think it was Napoleon who said an army marches on its stomach. You know, the cooks are the unsung heroes <laughs> because people can't fight without food, right? And, and I think God has a lot of that perspective in him. That he sees the success of something, not so much because of the gifted person who did the talking, but because of the people that gave the person that talks the platform to talk. And man, it's them that make everything happen and that's what he sees, and that's what he rewards. It's what it is to be his body. It means ministry together. Second thing, it does mean headship. It does mean headship. In Ephesians 4.15, the passage that we opened with, we are told that Jesus is our head, that we are the body, and that he is the head. 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So what it means to be the body is that we have a head, that we have a head. Now follow with me just a couple things here. The simple thing to point out here is that the body gets its instructions from its head. That is, that we act out with our bodies what we are told by our heads, by our minds to do. Now, humanly speaking, that's why your mind is the biggest battlefield that you're ever going to fight. Okay? Your mind. Why? Because Satan knows full well that if he can fill your mind with antichrist stuff, it will come out in your body. It'll come out in your actions. Right? That, that this is where the main battlefield is. That this, this place here between our ears is the place where we do most of our spiritual warfare. That, that guarding our hearts is a lot about what we allow to consume our attention the eye gate, the ear gate, right? That this is, a, this is the primary, this is part of the primary struggle that we have as Christians. This is where our battle centers. The point is that, that, uh, that in the same way that our bodies live out of what consumes our hearts and our minds, uh, our, 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 our minds, the, the church is supposed to live out of what the head calls it to do. The church is supposed to be obedient to Jesus as its head. Now, this is not, well, how many of you know the name A.W. Tozer? There was a season in my life which I I don't know if I've read everything he's ever written, but I'm going to say I came pretty close. Um, what I started realizing is that after his death, they kept publishing books because they were putting together stuff he had preached and like compiling it in different subject matters. And so I was finding that a lot of what I was reading I had read already in other places that had gotten compiled under a different subject matter. Um, He's not alive and he's not still writing books. Um, but this, this, this little article that he wrote is one that I read years ago. It's called The Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. The subtitle is, Is He Lord or Merely a Beloved Symbol? In it, he makes a number of, of statements to the church. Um, I'm not sure what to make of all of them. But let me just give you a little sample. The lordship of Jesus is not quite forgotten among Christians, but it has most, been mostly relegated to the hymnal, where all responsibility toward it may be comfortably discharged in a glow of pleasant religious emotion. Or if it's taught as a theory in the classroom, it is rarely applied to practical living. The idea that the man Jesus, Christ Jesus has absolute and final authority over the whole church and over all of its members in every detail of their lives is simply not now accepted as true by the rank and file of evangelical Christians. Now, I don't know if his, if his claim is true or not. What I do know is that from there, 
he says, I just made a pretty outrageous claim. I should try to prove it. And he goes through a whole list of scenarios in which he believes Christians act on their own instead of listening to the head, Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a sample. What church board consults our Lord's words to decide matters under discussion? Let anyone reading this who has had experience on a church board try to recall the times or time when any board member read from the scriptures to make a point or when any chairman suggested that the brethren should see what instructions the Lord had for them on a particular question. Board meetings are habitually opened with a formal prayer or a season of prayer. After that, the head of the church is respectfully silent, that is Jesus, while the real rulers of the church take over. Let anyone who denies this bring forth evidence to refute it. I, for one, will be glad to hear it. Well, I don't know. Um, he goes from there to talk about Sunday school committees, conference chairmans, foreign missions boards, the conduct of public worship, individual Christians, theological schools, and essentially says the whole church has abdicated its submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and is no longer listening to Christ as its head. He's way more pessimistic than I am. But I will tell you this as a general point. The occasional call that God didn't save us and then tell us, well, now that you're saved, you've got this and you can take it over from here is a valid one for us to recognize. Jesus is Lord and we answer to him. He's our head. We obey him. We do as we're told. Or at least we're supposed to. We have a mandate, please hear this, that the work of God is not supposed to be carried out any old way we want to. We're supposed to be seeking the mind of Christ in all things we do. We're supposed to be asking what would be the will of God in the way we go about the work that God has given us to do? As the church of God, we should be seeking the mind of God in terms of understanding what it is He has called us to do. Now, I want to I just take a second on this matter of headship. Uh, I hope I've made it clear that Jesus is the Lord and the church is supposed to obey. We're supposed to seek his will in the things that we do. Let me just, let me just make this, this quick uh, observation. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And God is the head of Christ. Now, that third verse is one that is vital for us to understand. It is also very easy to abuse. Very easy to abuse. I want to be clear about this verse. This verse upholds the concept of leadership. 
It upholds the concept of leadership. Leadership is a real thing, and it should be honored as such. But I want to, under, I want to make sure I underscore this point. The three scenarios that are presented in that verse are not on equal footing. That is, Christ as Lord of the church is not the same thing as a man being the head of his home. I was hoping for an amen right there. You know, that there are leadership positions that God has established and there are certain responsibilities attendant on those is true, right? That there's a certain reality there is true. But the application of that leadership in different scenarios is not necessarily the same thing. Now, I just want to point this out for whatever it's worth. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, If any man will be my disciple or will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I want you to notice the way he said it. Is there any choice in the way you're going to follow Jesus? I mean, in the way you're going to do it. If you're going to be his disciple, what are you going to have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. But the question of whether or not you're going to do it is 100% up to you. He says, here's the way. Whether or not you do it is up to you. It's up to you. Right? I think of Revelation 3.20. Jesus speaking to the church. I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open, I'll come in and sup with him. The fact of the matter is, the opening of the door is whose responsibility? It's mine. It's mine. Jesus doesn't bash down doors of human hearts. Whatever his authority is, whatever his headship is in the church, it is in this current age, in this current dispensation, it is voluntary to us as human beings. The position is absolute. The carrying out of it is completely voluntary. And I just got to tell you this. Sometimes we as, as leaders appeal to, to certain scriptures to establish our authority, and then we make demands on others that not even Jesus makes on us. He'll give us a command, and then he'll tell us, if you're going to follow me, do it. If you're going to follow me, do it. In other words, I want to make sure that we remember the fact that that everything, including headship, can get taken way too far. We human beings are good at being creatures of extremes. Men, lead your homes. Men, humble yourselves enough to acknowledge the way Jesus does it with his own church. Try to follow that pattern somewhat. <laughs> right? right? That, that there's not this, 
there's, there's not this controlling way of doing things. There's not a demand. There's a, if you're going to follow me, here's what you're going to have to do to follow me. There's this, there's this tension between the, the legitimacy of the authority and the humility of the one who's in the position of leadership. The way it gets carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ in his own church is to knock. That is, I see the knocking as an act of persuasion and invitation. But it doesn't come close to an act of force. It doesn't come close to force. My brothers and sisters, headship is a real thing. But learning to lead is an art that goes way, way, way beyond asserting your title all day long. I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm the man, I'm the this, I'm the that. There's a humility involved in leadership. I would suggest that the very best leaders are those that are being followed because they conduct themselves in such a way that people want to line up behind them and go where they're going. And if, as husbands and parents, we could conduct ourselves that way, right? When, when Jesus tries to persuade us, what he does is he calls us to follow his example. It's not so much an appeal to authority as it is an appeal to follow where he's already walked. That's the call of headship to those that are called to follow. The last thing about this is this. In this passage, what we see is that the call to uh, the body to serve together, that is the call to the body to be a body, is a call to edification. Yes, it's a call to ministry. It's a call to, to, uh, to headship, but it's also a call to edification. It's a call to edification. So in verses, uh, in verses 12, 15, 16, we see phrases like building up and grow up. These are phrases of edification. They're phrases of edification. So we are supposed to be, all of us, actively contributing to the edification of the church, that is to the growing up of the church, to the well-being of the body of Christ. We are supposed to be actively contributing toward and benefiting from our mutual commitment to build one another and the church up. This is the call. Listen, how do my words, how do my actions together with the body, promote edification, promote building up, right? Promote something that is helping the body or the person across from me move in a direction that is good for them and pleasing to the Lord, right? The work of edification. Now, it's interesting, it's interesting to, to think about this analogy of 
the church as a body, what it means to be a body, in terms of building it up and edifying uh, one another as the body of Christ. And I think there's a couple of scriptures that are easily confused if we don't look at them carefully. So let me just take a second to focus on this, 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 this issue of the body uh, and, and see what it means in terms of edifying, building up one another. 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think it's easy to get confused about what body is being dealt with in these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, we read this. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What body is being spoken of there? Is it the body of Christ? It's not. It's not. It's your human body. It's this flesh and blood, the physical temple. Paul's, Paul's uh, teaching us that our bodies, our physical bodies, are the temples of the Holy Spirit. He comes to live within us. Now please hear this. The call of the passage is that our moral choices should be governed by this idea that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. That is, there are things we should not do with our bodies. There are things that I should not let my eyes look at because my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are, there are things I should not let my ears hear because my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are siblings I should not hit because my hands are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are toys that belong to my siblings that I should not break maliciously because my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? It belongs to Him. I should only do things with my body that bring glory to God. This is a very intensely moral issue. It's an intensely moral issue. I want to say this as carefully as I can. We're about to go to the passage in which we're told, if any man destroys the temple, him shall God destroy. I just want to be clear about this. That's not talking about the physical body anymore. How many think it's important to take care of your physical body? I want to be clear about this. When the Bible talks about your physical body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, God is way, way, way more concerned about the moral 
life of your body than he is about the physical life of your body. They're not even close. It matters what we eat and drink. But I've got to tell you this. It matters less than the moral choices we make with our bodies. Sometimes it can be easy to make every little thing. Hey, I've joked enough about this, okay? So, um, uh, one of the things I've joked about, my justification for it, is that chocolate comes from a cocoa what? Bean. It's a legume. Come on. It's beans, okay? I'm going to eat beans. I don't like pinto beans much. I don't like lima beans much. But cocoa beans, I am like all in on cocoa beans. I am a fan of cocoa beans. Please hear this. I know that for me, how much chocolate I eat can become a moral issue. But the fact that I ate an M&M today, I didn't, by the way. But if I had, it wouldn't make me less holy. It wouldn't make me less holy. You know, um, can I say it this way? I'm not going to make any claims that Dr. Pepper is really good for me. My wife saved me from an early death. You know, when I was in college, it was Dr. Peppers and chocolate donuts for breakfast. That was, life was good back in the day. It was really good. It was really good. I needed my wife. I needed her. I needed her. But we need to make sure that we understand that, that what God calls us to in our bodies is a call to live out morally in our bodies in a way that is pleasing to God and does not allow our physical bodies to become mixed with sin. To become mixed with sin. It is easy to elevate certain things to a place that they don't, that it doesn't, doesn't have. It's a very specific call in 1 Corinthians 6. It's my brothers and sisters, don't join your bodies with someone who your body doesn't belong being joined with. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me go to the other passages and just read it quickly to see the significance of this. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. The point here is very different. Do you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Please hear this. The next time you see me drinking a Dr. Pepper, don't come to me and say to me, if any man destroys the temple of God, him shall God destroy, you vile person, you. Okay? And by the way, 
Don't do that with each other either. If you're drinking a two-liter bottle of Dr. Pepper every day, God have mercy on your soul. Because you're going to meet him soon. <laughs> okay? You know what I'm talking about, right? These issues can become issues of right and wrong for a believer. Right? But the issue of whether or not you eat or drink certain things is not the same issue as God commanding you, here's your moral boundaries. Here's your moral boundaries. If you look at a woman to lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. Don't do it with your body. Amen? It's a different issue. There's a command that governs that one absolutely. When Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians 3, please notice the context of the chapter. What he does is he starts the chapter by saying this. He's saying, in 1 Corinthians 3, he's saying there's conflict in the church. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I am of Cephas. You're dividing up into these little groups among you and you shouldn't be doing that. You're dividing up the body of Christ in ways you shouldn't. The second thing he does is he says, the church is supposed to be building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the way we build is going to be judged by God. Every man's work is going to be tried. You see, everything he's doing in the chapter is talking about the temple, not as the physical body, but as the church of Jesus Christ. And what he says in that context is, if you destroy my temple, God's going to destroy you. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. That's not a verse to use for bodies. It's a church to use for the church. Can I tell you something? God takes, God takes destroying his church very seriously. He takes infighting in the church very seriously. He takes us very seriously. The call of the New Testament is to edify the church of Jesus Christ. And anything that brings destruction to the church of Jesus Christ is going to come under the judgment of God.
Christ as our head. He's calling us to, to edifying the body, to building up the body, encouraging the body. But there's one verse in the middle of that passage that I want to make sure that we don't, that we don't miss before we close this morning. In Ephesians 4, there's this statement made in verse 14 that I just want to close with and draw your attention to. It says, As children, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Do you know part of what Paul is intending to communicate here is this. We, when we are left by ourselves, are prone to deception. We're prone to deception. We're prone to being deceived. We need other members of the body to keep us sane. Because if we didn't have people around us, um, every once in a while talking us down from our ledges, we'd go to places where we don't belong. We'd go crazy with some things. Left alone, left alone, we are easily deceived creatures, we human beings. The problem with deception is that you just can't see it. You just can't see it. Sometimes we have to have someone else in our lives that is able to talk to us in such a way that we, that we are challenged about the truths that we hold so self-evident. Right? We need that in our lives. And I've got to tell you, especially today, especially today, we need some brothers and sisters around us. I'm going to close with a quick example. Tomorrow, I get to sit down with a friend of mine who has moved out of state a long ways away. Don't get to see him anymore. But the other day, completely by surprise, I get a little package in the, in the, in the mail. Uh, and he says, in this little letter, he says, I've been reading this book for about the past year. I'm not done with it. But I got a chance to buy a bunch of copies of it, and you were one of the people that came to mind, so I'm sending it to you. It's a book on the Antichrist. I've been reading a book on the Antichrist the last couple days. Fascinating, the perspective. It comes from a very different theological background than I'm a part of. There is a very strong antichrist spirit in our day. And it's very deceptive. And my brothers and sisters, it is so easy, it is so easy to get caught up in things that are just so crazy in this day and age. Did you know that there was a time when people thought Ronald Reagan might be the antichrist? He was shot. He survived. His first name had six letters. His middle name had six letters. His last name had six letters. 
course, there was also Gorbachev, who had a big mark on his head, and he was the Antichrist. And during World War II, there were those who believed that Hitler was the Antichrist. And, and what, am I, what am I saying when I say this? I'm just talking about the fact that we Christians are sometimes so prone to getting caught up in fringe kinds of things that we just need people around us to talk us down from our craziness and just say to us again, hey, let's stay focused on the main thing. Let's stay focused on the main thing. There will be a mark of the beast. Don't know exactly what it will be yet. There will be one. I don't think it's going to be hard to figure out. I think it's going to be pretty clear. My point is this. As the church, let's rely on one another to help us stay on the, on the main road in these days. We need each other to this end. There's a lot of stuff that we need to talk about to be able to gain the collective wisdom of the body. In the end, we might not all make the same decisions that everybody makes. It's okay. But I'll tell you this. We need one another. We need one another. We come at things differently. Just my, my, my closing illustration. How many of you find yourself struggling with fear as your kind of go-to response to what you see happening in the world around you. How many of you, your response tends to be a bit fearful? Just honestly, for a second. How many of you find your prominent, your prominent response not to be fear, but to be angry? Okay, some of those. Okay. My point is simply this. We all have different challenges in the day and age we're living in. We need each other to help keep us same. I don't mean like theoretically we need each other. I mean actually we need each other. Actually we need each other. If the church can't get together, talk together, help each other out, provide context that keeps all of us within proper lanes, man, we're missing the boat. We need one another in the body of Christ. And the call the Apostle Paul makes here, one of his main points in making sure that the church is being edified and built up and following Christ is our head, is that we would not be deceived in the day and age in which we live. That we would not be carried away by wrong ideas and wrong doctrines, but that we would grow up in Christ as our head. That that focus would remain laser clear. I guess what I'm saying as I close is this. We must be very purposeful about choosing to be a body. We have to be very deliberate about this. Lord, what does it mean to be the body of Christ today? What does it mean to create an atmosphere where we recognize that we need each other and we actually desire each other? Where we invite each other? Where we acknowledge that our differences are part of the push-pull that God has created to keep us in a place that is profitable for all of us. Amen? To be the body that God has called us to be. To be the body that God's called us to be.
Could we bow? I know that was not a fancy message. It wasn't a, uh, a big emotional appeal at the end. They don't all have to be. I kind of look at this as um, spiritual wheat bread. Somebody in here is going to tell me that wheat bread's not all that good for you, but I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> compared to a chocolate donut, it's health food, okay? That's what I see the message as. Let's be the body of Christ. There's something very healthy about being engaged in life together. Something very healthy about being part of the body. Let's work together. Let's submit to Jesus together. And let's build each other up. And, uh, and let's let it be done in such a way that we that we stay focused where we should be and we're not led away by the winds that blow so hard in our day. Lord, I just close this morning asking that your spirit would work through the body. And so, uh, Lord, in a few minutes, we're going to have a congregational meeting in which there's going to be a vote. And we're going to have to believe that your spirit is going to lead us as we seek the mind of Christ together. That not one person is enough for that. Not even two, three, four people are enough for that. But that there's something profound about being the body of Christ together. Lord, that we would be able to say something like, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Lord, I think of the Jerusalem Council. I think of a lengthy discussion that concludes with, this is the way the Holy Spirit has led us. And Lord, I just pray that this, that we as a body would be able to demonstrate that life of your Spirit, that we would be truly your temple collectively, counting on your Spirit to lead us, to direct us, to keep us within proper boundaries. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your church. Lord, help us to be faithful to the ministry you have called each of us to. Help us to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ as our head. Lord, help us to build each other up and to jealously guard the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ as your body. And Lord, keep us from deception in this day. Keep us from being led astray. Keep us from, in the words of Ephesians 4.14, keep us from the winds, the trickery, the craftiness, the deceitfulness of our day. Keep us, Lord, um, laser-focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, on who we are in Christ, and on what you have given us to do as a mission. Lord, I pray as we close and these boxes sit here for Samaritan's Purse, the Christmas child, uh, Samaritan's um, uh, Operation Christmas. Lord, I pray 
that you would touch hearts with the gifts that are being given. Lord, it's not just about contributing material things to people who are needy, but it's that very James-like understanding that when people are in deep need, it's hard to hear. We can't just say, be warm and be fed and not give them those things that are needful. So, Lord, uh, I pray that as these boxes go, f- go from this place, I pray a special anointing of your Holy Spirit on those who distribute them and on those who share the gospel as they distribute them. And I pray that the gift would be part of your Holy Spirit's way of softening the hearts of the recipients. And I pray that someone would be led to Jesus through the gifts that are being offered today. Lord, one very small part of the work of ministry that you have allowed us to be part of as a body body together. And I would just ask that you would make it effective, that you would make it fruitful. I pray that you would use our efforts for your honor, for your glory, and for the the edification of your kingdom, the building up of your kingdom. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being a body together. Help us to serve you faithfully in this day and age that we are called to live in. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks to everyone that contributed to the boxes that are up here. We are going to start our congregational meeting in uh, uh, 12 minutes, 12 o'clock, okay? Um, So please be back here by then so we can get started right on time and have